Welcome everyone to The Legal Brief. I'm Misty Maris and I'm joined by Lauren Mincer-Clark, my executive producer. And we had a huge week this week. So we thought we'd do a roundup on all of the big legal stories and trials from the week. Lauren, bring us through it. Yes, there's a bunch of stories that we've been following, some other big things that have been going on uh, that we finally we just want to kind of get to all of it because you've been following. Kim Potter's the one that I wanted to start with because there's just obviously she was sentenced to 24 months in prison and you've been following this trial from day one. And so can you kind of break everything down and also your reaction to how this all played out? Yeah, so today was Kim Potter's sentencing hearing, and the result was different than a lot of people thought it would be. So there's a lot of buzz Mm. around this case of the hearing and everything that happened today. So taking a step back, Kim Potter is the former Minnesota police officer who mistakenly drew a gun instead of a taser and fatally shot Dante Wright during a traffic stop. So this is, she was found guilty and convicted of first and second degree manslaughter during her trial. And today was the sentencing. And in advance of sentencing, both sides are submitting their positions to the court. So the judge has information before we go into that courtroom and we hear from the prosecution, we hear from the defense, there's a bunch of briefs that are filed during the time period in between the trial and the sentencing. And so there was a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. So this, her, the highest level charge that she was convicted of, first degree manslaughter, carries a maximum sentence of 15 years. But of course, with every state, every statute, every criminal statute, there's sentencing guidelines. So just because you're convicted of a crime doesn't mean you get that maximum time right in your sentence and it depends on a variety of factors so in her case the sentence guidelines say that she would have under normal circumstances anywhere from six to eight years and there's something called the presumptive sentence and that's really where people without a criminal record people that had the same criteria coming into the courtroom during the sentencing hearing as Kim Potter, that's where they would land. The presumption Mm. sentence, it's just a little over seven years. So most people thought that is where her sentence would end up because when a judge sticks to the sentencing guidelines, that sentence is almost bulletproof. So unless there's an right at the trial level, if the judge sticks to the sentencing guidelines, there's not really that much anybody can say about it on appeal. It's really, really solid because those guidelines were made for that particular crime by the legislature. So it's supposed to take into consideration all of those factors. And in this case, Kim Potter no criminal record. So she was going in on that lower end with that presumptive seven-year sentence. And there was a lot of confusion leading up to the sentencing hearing because both sides, the prosecution and the defense, asked for a departure from sentencing guidelines. What does that mean? Well, the prosecution said this crime was much more serious than the average first-degree manslaughter crime. So Kim Potter's sentence should be higher than the sentencing guidelines. 
The defense made the opposite argument. There's mitigating factors here and the sentence should be much lower. In fact, it should just be probation. So nothing we haven't heard before, Lauren. This happens right. all the time in criminal sentences that obviously one side is arguing for more time, the other less. Right, of in course. This case, they were asking to both go away from the sentencing guidelines. But two days ago, right before this hearing, the prosecution filed uh, a filed a brief. And in their brief, they, instead of seeking those aggravating factors, which is something the court has to consider and rule on and the prosecution has to prove, the prosecution said, we believe the correct sentence in this case is the presumptive sentence of seven seven years that we were talking about before. So that was a surprise to a lot of people Hmm. because they had already filed this brief regarding aggravating factors. So nobody really knew what was going on there because they didn't withdraw that motion to begin with where they were seeking that higher sentence. And then they come in with this brief and they say, okay, we're looking for seven years. The presumptive sentence falls in the sentencing guidelines. We think that's appropriate for this case. The prosecution then said in the same brief, in the alternative, if the judge does decide to deviate from the sentencing standards and give only probation, we ask that Kim Potter serve at least one year in jail, that she be on probation for 10 years, and that she contribute to society in a very meaningful way by participating in safety courses mm-hmm. about weapon confusion and maybe even speaking to manufacturers about how to avoid something like this again. So there's a whole list of items that they were talking about. The, and this is the prosecution, mind you. Right. Very unusual. Uh, Okay. Yeah. The prosecution's putting in their brief. We want the presumptive sentence, but if you're not going to give the presumptive sentence, we're okay with one year, Mm. 10 years probation, all these other non, uh, these other items that really didn't have anything to do with spending time just relate to the impact on society and that it's up to the defense to prove that there is a, a, a great, this great benefit to society by having Kim Potter not serve her entire sentence in jail. You know, she's going to be on probation. She should participate in all these things. So that was the prosecution's brief. They got up today and the prosecution said, oh, we actually didn't ever want to seek aggravating factors. It was just procedurally we had to file that way back in the day. So from a public perception perspective, which again, really isn't supposed to impact what goes on in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. There was so much confusion going into that hearing. Yeah. Because at first it was, oh, we want to go way above. Now we just want the status quo. And and then this also this other avenue, leaving the door open for the defense to make their argument, which of course, as in all criminal trials, where there's a sentencing, What a defense attorney does on behalf of their client is raise mitigating factors. No criminal history. She had served as a police officer for 26 years. She's not charged with an intentional crime. It was a reckless crime. She was very sympathetic. She was remorseful. All of that Mm -hmm. was part of the defense argument. So what happened in court today? Well, it was honestly an incredibly emotional day. I can't even imagine how it felt to be sitting in that courtroom because mm. it was pain all around. And, and in fact, Ugh. the judge said this is one of the most difficult cases that she's dealt with on the bench in, in wow. the past 20 years. And Dante Wright's family, 
spoke. They they presented victim impact statements. Um, they were all very very effective and just extremely heart-wrenching to listen to. Dante Wright was 20 years old. I mean, it's a tragedy. He had a young child. Um, You know, his mother spoke and, and talked about how his loss was so profoundly impactful to her. I mean, it's, it was, it was really, really difficult to watch and very emotional. The entire family requested that Kim Potter be punished under the full force of the law. So they were really seeking and, you know, they didn't specify, but his family as a whole was talking about, it, it, you know, really giving her something more towards that maximum. Max. Sentence. Yeah. And they focused on certain facts. Every there was there was a lot of um, overlap between what they spoke about. They uh, every single member of the family talked about their relationship with Dante Wright, how they missed him. Everything you would expect to hear. Right. Really, really sad. Very, very difficult to process and very difficult to hear. They also focused on a lot of what we saw play out in the trial, that Kim Potter had been on the police force for 26 years, that this was not a mistake that she should have made. She was, because she was on the force for so long, Mm. it was so unreasonable Mm -hmm. that she made this mistake, um, that she was actually responsible for training new police officers. So there was a lot of focus on those general themes that we heard during the prosecution's case. The defense, on the other hand, came out with very specific legal arguments, raised a lot of um, case law in Minnesota, comparative cases where somebody was convicted of first degree manslaughter and argued for that deviation from the sentencing guidelines and went through a bunch of cases and all there's something called the trog factors in minnesota went through these factors of is somebody remorseful are are they are they somebody who's going to commit a crime again all all of the reasons Mm -hmm. behind the criminal justice system why do we imprison people right it's right there's all all of that went through all of that and then kim potter spoke and she was incredibly emotional she addressed the family directly um, and she spoke about how sorry she was and that that she prays for the family every day. And you know, her her statement was also very emotional. Uh, and it was it was mm. it was tough to watch play out. So then the judge went through everything and ultimately gave this sentence, which was an extreme deviation from right. the guidelines. Yeah. So what what do I think uh, happened? Well, yeah, I, I actually think that. This was a unique case, uh, mm-hmm. and I expected Kim Potter to be sentenced at that presumptive sentence. I thought it would be touching that uh-huh. seven years, maybe a little less, of course, yeah, maybe a All little right. more, but would really Something. fit within the sentencing guidelines. Um, what happens after somebody is convicted of a crime is, and, and in between the conviction and the sentencing the probation office actually gets involved and the probation office Hmm. does a thorough investigative report and makes a recommendation about someone's incarceration. So it, that report will identify Uh, the same type of thing we hear in the courtroom. Right. Right. Factors. And one of the main components of this case was, is Kim Potter particularly amenable, more so than another defendant, to probation? And that means that 
is Kim Potter a candidate who will who will be successful on probation as, as opposed to incarceration? Is she somebody who you mm. expect to commit a crime again? Is she somebody that you right. need to deter? Is she uh, going through all of those tenets of the criminal justice system? Obviously, punishment is is part of that. So right. The the defense alluded to the probation report and that it was favorable to the defense. And I do think that what happened here is that the judge really she didn't she didn't say that she actually had a very thorough explanation. She talked about this being a case where a deviation was appropriate. Um, you know, she acknowledged that Dante Wright's family and, and how difficult this was for them. And she acknowledged that Dante Wright's life was extraordinarily valuable. But on the flip side, she said, this is a unique set of circumstances and facts that warrant this deviation. And I do think that that probation report was mm. a, a big factor in that because judges do rely on that. They're, they, Of course. It's a thorough investigation. So that's my gut there. I have not, just full disclosure. I have not reviewed the report. I'm sure it's public somewhere at this point, but um Right. It, it was it was a very much an emotional day. But that's that's the explanation, because a lot of people are asking that question. How can it be 24 months? Right. And she only serves two thirds of it. So it's really 16. And then she got credit for time served and she's been in, in jail for almost 60 days. So she's already really only serving 12. So really, really about a year. At this A point. year. Or 14 months, I guess. I'm not good at math, but. Right. But so a lot of people, you know, there's, there's both of course. points. Some people are outraged. Some people think it's the correct result. Uh, the judge in this case, though, I will say her decision on the record, the reasoning, there's no question as to her reasoning because she laid it all out. And I think a unique thing in this particular case for such a big deviation is that you had the defense arguing for it, but you had the prosecution with this dedication in their brief going into the hearing, almost saying, hey, if you're going to deviate, this is what we're looking for. And th- they're looking mm. for it really just a year. So that was unusual, which makes me think that that was something in that probation report that the prosecution was acknowledging Okay, this exists in right. the court. If the judge is going to mm-hmm. rule this way, then let's let's deal with it on the front end and try and take this very, very tragic and terrible situation and turn it into something that could be uh, a betterment for police training practices and for society as a whole with respect to weapons confusion. Man, well, it's a whole lot. And thank you so much for bringing it all down. You have been on that one, I mean, from day one. I know you've been covering it nonstop. So thank you for breaking it all down so we can understand kind of, because there is, there's a lot of chatter about that going on right now. Um, but some of the other things that I wanted to get to, we want to talk about the Rust movie set, uh, the ongoing legal drama with that. This week, there was a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed a few days ago just by Helena Hutchins' family. Several defendants were named, including Alec Baldwin, alleging that he recklessly shot and killed her. Um, Misty, I know there's a lot of big factors that are listed in this lawsuit, um, but one of them, you know, a big part of this is that there are already rules in place and that they basically didn't follow at least 15 guidelines and protocols, right? So there's a lot that's kind of alleged in here. So can you take us through some of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So you bring up a really good point, Lauren, because what this case is, it's a wrongful death case, right? There's the tragic mm-hmm. loss of a life here. 
But at the end of the day, the legal claim is a negligence claim. So mm-hmm. we can all agree going into this case, which uh, just to clarify is a civil case. So this is right. about monetary relief. This is not a criminal court. There is a criminal investigation that's ongoing, yep. but there have been no charges yet. So this relates to the civil matter, the wrongful death case brought by Helena Hutchings family mm-hmm. against Alec Baldwin, but not just Alec Baldwin, all of the other producers and entities involved with the production of Rust. So it's a negligence case. We can all agree something went terribly, terribly, terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what? What went wrong? And where did it go wrong? And whose responsibility was it? So you're going to see all everybody... Everybody involved is going to be named in this case. Alex mm-hmm. Baldwin, 100%. I, I suspected this case was coming. It was just a matter of time before this wrongful death was case, death case was coming. Alec Baldwin is going to be named. He's the person right. holding the gun. Right. He's the person shooting the gun. But not only that, he's also a part of the production exactly. of the movie. So there's liability potentially under several different theories. So take what you were just saying, Lauren. There's all of these industry standards for safety and safety checks and, and mm-hmm. that, that have to be complied with to the extent that they were not. Well, there you go. You have an argument for negligence. Now the question is, is that what caused Helena Hutchins' tragic accident, mm-hmm. right? So right. all of that's going to be evidence towards that point. The other legal claims they're bringing up, they're bringing up wrongful hiring. They're saying right. that it's negligent, that the person who was responsible for the armor and for for the guns was not qualified to 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 do so. They say that there was so many cost cutting measures that yes. the production was not following the safety protocols and rules because you know what? They were just cutting corners. They wanted yes. to get things done. They wanted to be on this expedited schedule to save money. Listen, and, as yeah. someone in production, that is the story. I, it, it happens all the time. That's it. People performing two roles overloaded with work. I mean, this kind of stuff that can happen. So that's all of the, it's, those are big allegations, but that's stuff that we hear a lot common. Oh, absolutely. And that's why you see all of these different entities and individuals named because the question is who's responsible at the end of the day. And it, right. it might not be one person. It might be multiple people. It might be multiple entities. It, it could be a whole variety of different outcomes depending on what happens during the course of the investigation. Now, there's a legal theory called negligence per se. And negligence per se means that because something was so negligent, because you violated these other rules, that it's 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 negligence on its face because you violated the rules and then this happened, right? Mm-hmm. You violated the rules and then this happened. So Therefore, just by virtue of the fact that you violated these rules, these safety protocols, right. you're going to be found negligent. Now, again, all of that is going to be something that's going to have to happen during the course of the investigation because there's there's counter arguments coming out from the other right. side about the safety protocols that were taken about who's responsible. My prediction, it's already happening. There's finger pointing all over the place. Oh, it's absolutely. This one, it's that one, it's this one, it's that one. And during the course of the civil litigation, what's going to happen is you're going to exchange discovery. You're going to take depositions. You're going to mm. have copies of all those protocols. You're going to have copies of text messages. You're going to have copies of emails. You're going to have 
everything exchanged between the parties. And if this case were to ever get that far where you're at a trial, Mm -hmm. a jury would hear all of that and make a determination about fault. And in New Mexico, different states work differently, but fault can be apportioned between different individuals. So you could say, hypothetically, total hypo, you know, production company number one is 80% responsible because Uh they didn't enforce the safety protocols. Alec Baldwin is 20% responsible because he didn't properly check the gun or as a producer. Again, total hypo, but could be broken down 10%, 10%, 10% across the board. Could be no liability. It just depends on how everything plays out. What I will say about this case, this is a tough case because it just on its face when I, when I look at the facts here, and yeah. you look at what happened. Somebody yes. screwed up. Yeah, somebody screwed up to the point where a woman is dead. Right. So right. And well, and to your exact well, and that's well, <laughs> but, right. But who? I don't know yet. <laughs> it, and that, and that's exactly it because you also and you mentioned how there's already you know there you expect there's already finger pointing that's already happening. Baldwin's attorneys, when they were responding to the filing, they actually point out that any claim against Alec was reckless and entirely false, but also added that he, Helena, and the rest of the uh, crew relied on um, a statement that was made by two professional two professionals responsible for checking the gun, saying that it was a cold gun. So they're already implying that other people signed off on him being able to hold it, which is also what we saw in the interview that he did during the sit-down. I mean, this is... I feel like it could only get more explosive because this is just going to get bigger and the finger pointing is just going to get more, especially now that all, you know, the lawsuits are in place and there's criminal, you know, charges that are being investigated and all of this now that it's getting heightened. Oh, absolutely. And like you said, Lauren, Alec Baldwin's the huge name here and he's the one that's holding the gun. Right. And I, I don't know yet based on, what we've seen so far in the public sphere, right? We know right. the allegations here. Right. Allegations are just that. They're allegations. In fact, mm-hmm. the the this is the family. This is this is Helena, Helena Hutchins' family bringing this um, on her behalf. So the way that a wrongful death lawsuit works is that the person who's deceased would have been able to bring a personal injury lawsuit had they lived. So they it, they almost step into the shoes of right. the deceased for the purpose of bringing the case. And the reality is they probably do not know the lawyer, the family. They don't necessarily know exactly what went wrong yet. Mm-hmm. They know something went wrong. And right. they, And at the end of the day, there might be an armor who is not maybe was not qualified. There might be an armor who made a mistake. Um, there's a legal theory called respondent superior. And Mm. it means when somebody is negligent in the course of their employment, sometimes under certain circumstances, that person's action can be imputed to the company that they work for. So there's a Mm. lot of complex legal theories. So, and, and again, some of the other theories, if this was this person qualified, well, say there's a finding that the person who was the armor was not qualified and it's a and and because he was not qualified a jury finds that that was causally connected to the death because he didn't check take care of the gun properly didn't check the gun properly 
Well, now who's responsible for that? Well, that's back to the production company. So who's responsible for the hiring? It's so complicated. I mean, it's not just a cut and dry case. Right. And it's going to take a long time for this to be parsed out for a couple of reasons. First of all, Lauren, you flagged it. There's an ongoing criminal investigation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any lawyer is going to tell their client, we don't want you to sit (laughs) for a civil deposition if criminal charges have not been... If, if there's no clarity on whether or not there's going to be criminal charges. So that's number one. So the fact that there's criminal charges out there in the ether, uh, an investigation going on would likely stay this case or at least delay this case significantly. These civil cases for moving forward. There's also two other cases that were brought by individuals who were right. on set who say they were in the zone of danger. Um, meaning that they were in the the vicinity of where the horrific incident occurred and that therefore there is liability and they, they are also entitled to damages. There's those two other cases and it's multi-jurisdictional. Those cases are in California. This is in New Mexico. So complicated there. Are they going to be on some sort of track or they're going to be looking for some sort of consolidation in, in a federal court? I'm not, I don't know. Those are legal questions that need to be answered. And the other piece is that this particular case, we're talking about just the most horrific thing that could possibly happen mm-hmm. in, under these circumstances. This woman is dead from from an error that happened. I mean, we right. can all agree it was right. a mistake. We can all agree it was a mistake. Of Does course. it rise to the level of negligence? Well, negligence means that a reasonable person would have acted differently. Okay, so it's it's low standard. It's it's right. It's a, the reasonable person standard. It's the lowest lowest standard mm-hmm. of law, and it needs to be proved by the preponderance of the evidence. I wouldn't be surprised a case like this if this didn't go into a mediation and there was a resolution or a settlement that occurs, right before we even get into before we get to mm-hmm. the litigation. Yeah, because um you see that happen a lot in wrongful death cases uh and there's a lot of reasons to do it and a lot of it has to do with what i was just talking about which is that there's so many parties involved and it can be so complicated and it could take years and years and years and years to litigate does the family want closure maybe you know right. does does the production company and the individuals involved in the lawsuit say you know we don't we don't want to have this continuing on forever and we don't want to have to sort through all the finger pointing to decide who's liable right. more than the other person. Maybe. So that those are all different possibilities. I don't think we're going to have a lot of clarification or results on this particular case for a while. Yeah, because and, and, there's a lot. There's a lot. And we will certainly be following it all as it goes through. Um, and I want to move on to our next one because there's another story that we've been following that had a big update this week. Prince Andrew. Um, the lawsuit with Prince Andrew was settled earlier this week. What, Misty, what do you think about this? Let's talk about it. I was not shocked at all. Mm-hmm. I predicted that this case you, was settled. Yep. Uh, I, it, they I did not that, want to sit down for a deposition and air <laughs> any more dirty laundry. You called it. Nope. <laughs> not going to happen. Not right. going to happen. So Prince Andrew took a really hardcore stance of litigation. Not surprised that he did. I mean, he argued that the complaint was deficient. We went through all of this. Yeah. argued that there was a settlement agreement 
that would have precluded Virginia Gouffre from bringing claims directly against him in a civil lawsuit. He was not successful on those arguments. And a federal judge said this case moves forward. And the discovery schedule was moving. Right. Things were supposed to be being exchanged as we were we were recording a right. podcast. Once. Yes. Time was still a ticking with discovery. And you don't mess with deadlines in federal court. No, we've talked about that, that too. No yeah, way. You, it's not like a free-for-all over there like in the SCMY. It is rigid. <laughs> so he was probably sitting for a deposition in the next couple of months. I mean, not, not, not too far away right. for him to sit down and be deposed. And just knowing his... Obviously, he he's part of the royal family. Even if he mm-hmm. had to give up his titles and give up some yes. of his stature, he's still an extraordinarily high-profile person. And the right. reality is that who knows what was going to come out during the course of a deposition? Was he concerned about something that could lead to potential criminal charges? Was he let? Was he not even concerned about that? That's the extreme. Was he just concerned that the breadth of what you can what you can look yeah. into in discovery is super broad. So just so was he just concerned that like, right, the, like that last interview that he did, that didn't go so well in his favor. So well, you know I don't what? know. His lawyers were probably telling him that. Too. They're I mean, like, hey. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were saying, remember hey, you went out there <laughs> and you made these statements and then we've got this picture and God knows what else they have that has not been made public. Uh, that there, if there's records or whatever right. there might be that, that could tend to, be a problem for him. But Lauren, you said it. I mean, we talked about it. We were actually live on set together when, when we, yes. when we were covering that. Uh, and we were talking about how it, it's, it's so problematic for somebody who has all of this cooking around them yep. to sit down and do an interview like that, because every single thing you say in that public sphere can come back to bite you. Yep. And I guarantee that was a huge part of the conversation. The other piece is obviously as being part of the royal family, there may have been other pressures. Hey, you, uh, we can't we can't have this go on. Right. Who knows what else is out there? Who Again, knows? Yeah, definitely. Discovery, the process, it's not just what comes into the court. That's what's admissible. Discovery in a civil case is anything relevant. So there could be items of information that's exchanged yep. that never actually comes into the trial, but could open up doors to other issues. Who knows? So not surprised at all that they settled. Um, we, and we don't know the amount exactly, know. right? But there have been lots of reports There's around like, reports. yep. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so the New York Post said that there was a reported, and this was from a source, so I, I'm not sure how accurate this is, an estimated right. $12 million settlement. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, yeah. I, the number didn't, the, I didn't get gut punched by that number. I thought to myself, okay. Right. Uh, it's, let's talk about what settlements are. Settlements are as much as somebody is willing to pay and as little as somebody is willing to take. Hmm? There's an yep. amount that is legally recoverable in a case like this. And is the amount $12 million? I don't know. Probably right. Virginia Gouffre has a lot of hurdles to prove her case, which she's required to do as the plaintiff because of the age and because of how long ago everything happened. And right. so there's a risk there that she goes, you know, that they take this all the way and they go to trial and she, there's no liability. So there's a risk yeah. on her end. And Prince Andrew, the time for a settlement to be the most 
cost effective and, and the best for a plaintiff and the best for a defendant is before the defendant is forced to go through all of the litigation. Because right. once you're going through the litigation, once whatever he doesn't want public is public. Right. Cards are all on the table then. It's, right? it's over. The, yeah. the, the case is worth zero dollars because right. now you're just going to litigate it and let Shown it everything. fall where they may. Um, damages in these cases, it's emotional distress. I mean, look, if a, if a jury, yep. be- we saw some of the settlements that came out of the Epstein uh, victim fund. Um, mm-hmm. Look, it's, it's, it depends. It's, is there, is there treatment? You know, is somebody having, having de- psychological damage? Is there treatment to support that? But if somebody is truly, if a jury believed that she was sex trafficked as a teenager, I mean, the sky's the limit on right. what that could po- how that could possibly impact you. Right. She's older now. So to, to the extent she, there's medical records and there's, there's a value to it. 12 million. Would she get that at trial? I don't know because it didn't all play out, but I'm not surprised to see a number like that in a case like this with such a high profile individual. Right. All right. Well, very interesting. I have to agree. I, that's when I saw that that was some of the numbers I saw another place had reported that London newspapers were saying something around 13 million, either way, something around that. I, I, I thought 10 million kind of stood out in my mind when I was just, you know, discussing and wondering to myself what it could be. Yeah. So, well, you know, so settlement agreements, one of the things you bargain for when you make a settlement agreement is confidentiality. It's something mm-hmm. in New York, the plaintiff has to want confidentiality. Right. The plaintiff actually has a time period to contemplate it and make sure that's what they want. The laws have recently changed on oh. confidentiality and sexual harassment okay. assault cases. Yeah. So, so the plaintiff has to want confidentiality. Okay. And if the plaintiff wants confidentiality and the defendant wants confidentiality, it's a bargain for term in the agreement. Is what it is. Yep. Yeah. So it's, oh. so we'll probably, uh, unless it's leaked somehow, we're not going to know. It's not going to be reported somewhere publicly. Uh, right. But I mean, this is, that that range again with somebody like him and all of the sordid details that go around the Epstein cloud, right? Because mm-hmm. he and and you know he also, I'm sure Prince Andrew saw. Well, Glenn Maxwell just got convicted again. This was a civil case, right? But the Epstein. It seems that Epstein, anybody that's in his vicinity. Is not doing so well in right. his legal cases. No, no, so no. So that's a yeah. huge factor. I mean, his right. Of course, of course, it was. And I believe that's what he said in his statement that he is sorry that he ever was affiliated with him. affiliated. Course, yeah, right. In of course, agreements. Every the, a person does not admit guilt. In fact, right. there's usually a paragraph in there that says. Uh, you admit no wrongdoing. This is, this is not, yeah, actually right. putting it it's up. It's a yep. financial decision. So um, it's a business decision, really. So in any case, not surprised to see it settle at all. Kind of thought that would happen. I just didn't know if it would happen now or if it would happen the day before his deposition. Oh, the day before. <laughs> <laughs> Did rip that bit in and moved on right now. Right. Um, but so, and then the last one that I wanted to get to is a quick update. Sarah Palin, um, that was another update from this week. She actually lost her libel suit against the New York Times as both the judge and jury rejected her claims. Uh, Misty, any surprises here? 
Yeah, I think that my only surprise with this particular case, so the jury didn't think she fulfilled the standard of um, th- that's required for a public figure, which is actual malice in a defamation suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and also damages. Her Damages is an essential part of the case, and she didn't really have any tangible damages. She didn't seek treatment or anything. She she said she did. I think it was yoga or Pilates. or <laughs> yeah. she, So it yeah. wasn't, there wasn't really a lot of ta- tangible damages. Um you know, she really didn't have any proof that it damaged her reputation or that she had any financial consequences from it. So that was one problem. The actual malice standard, as we discussed, uh, is a very, very high standard. But what I did think was surprising is that the judge actually announced to the court, and this was not in the jury's presence, but the jury ended up finding out about it. The judge said, whatever the jury returns, I'm going to give a directive verdict here, which means that the judge was going to throw out the case anyway. The judge was going to say there isn't enough evidence to support the claim that Sarah Palin made for Mm -hmm. defamation or libel um, because they didn't fulfill the actual malice. So there's an issue because the jury admitted that they found out that the judge was going to throw out the case during their deliberation. So the question is, did the judge's Yeah. Did did the judge's position influence the jury's decision? So that was potentially problematic. The jury has been polled and they said it's Mm -hmm. not. Um, But it's an appellate issue. It's an appellate issue. And so we'll see what happens with that. Uh, The the other thing I, I think that this case did, and this is not legal necessarily, but there was a lot of insight into the New York Times and its fact-checking procedures and practices. And I would imagine that they're probably tightening up over there a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I would say internally, Mm -hmm. there would be a review to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again, especially since some of the testimony that came out didn't look too great for them. Not that it rose to that actual malice standard that it needs to be uh, a lot that needs to get to, to the point of where there's liability, but just because internally, you know, this is the time to button up and tighten up those procedures. So the next time there isn't, uh, you, you can't say that you didn't know, right? <laughs> the right, next time right. You could say, okay, we have identified the holes in our practices and procedures and we're fixing them. And that, that whole issue of fact checking speaks to a negligence or recklessness standard because it's what did they do to ensure that information right. that goes to print is correct and and if they if that if it's not correct what was was it negligent or was it reckless in reporting so that's all going to go down this does not have any impact this particular case on the case that we talked about last time which is in the process of being briefed right now whether or not the Supreme Court decides to take this issue up and review its landmark decision from the mm-hmm. 1960s New York Times v. Sullivan um, and address that actual malice standard and potentially change it or uh, flatten it a little bit so it's not so difficult. I don't know if that's really going to happen. But if the Supreme Court takes up a defamation liable case like that, it's definitely something to watch because that standard of actual malice makes it nearly impossible for a public figure to be successful in one of these lawsuits. It's a very, very high standard. 
Whew, man. Well, it's a lot. We've had a lot, a lot of big things this week, Vestay. A lot yeah. of big updates. Absolutely. A lot of big updates, a lot happening in the legal world. Oh, also, I feel like because we're just doing a roundup, I also feel like there's there's two things that I need to tell everyone. If you if we're talking about the entertainment and true crime world, Tinder Swindler and Inventing Anna. These two right now are out on Netflix and they are hand- I did watch them and I I remember the Anna Delvey case. I yes. remember when it was working its way through the courts. And I, I had to have a little bit of a refresher because I remembered that she was very specific about her wardrobe. And every time we were trying to find out facts about the case, we couldn't find anything because the reporting was very, very good. Yes. yes. So, I have, when I was watching this, I forgot so many of the details about this case and how wild it is. It's crazy. Yeah. They were both really, really good. And I think Lauren, we should, we should talk about the Tinder swindler a little more in our next episode. I think that's an interesting story because I agree. No spoilers here. We'll, we'll make sure to give a spoiler alert at the beginning. Yes, absolutely. I think that we should take, we should do a live podcast. And because I'm sure that a lot of the, because it's the one that everyone's buzzing about right now uh, is the Tinder swindler. So I feel like we should set a date and we should get involved and let's talk about it because there is so much interesting stuff. And, you know, there's some follow-up legal things that I feel like a lot of people like myself have to ask about this story. Yes, I'm so excited. All right, keep an eye out, everybody, because we want you to engage. We will send out, we'll do it way in advance so that everybody has the yes. opportunity to join. And we'll talk about the that we'll talk about that case just in general, but we'll talk about all the legal issues that are some of them still hanging out there. Yes. Well, A little tease, still so stuff out there. Thank you so much for listening to the legal roundup on Friday. Everybody have an amazing weekend and enjoy. Oh, some those of you that have a long weekend, enjoy. Yes, enjoy everybody. Thank you so much for listening.